You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Today we put on our brewing caps and propose eight new deck lists for Grixis Week, featuring Corpse Appraiser, Maestro's Ascendancy, Humble Defector, Riel the Everwise, and much more. We'll be fine trophies by joining the Maestros. Find out this week on Faithless Brewing, and hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, coming to you from the Twin Cities, and I am joined, as always, by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. He is Caved In Online. He's Caved In in our hearts. Daniel Schriever, what's going on, buddy? Hey, I'm doing well, David. Good to be here with you again on this fine Monday. Yes, tremendous. The uh, week has begun. (laughs) Why enjoy a weekend when you can work for a living? So we're here for, this is our 29th episode of Streets of New Capenna Season. <laughs> As I say that, it sounds preposterous. We've been in this set for a while now. I did not think that there would be that many cards to <laughs> to really dig into from Streets of New Capenna. We've been dipping our toes into some non-Capenna cards over the last few weeks. Today, we are going back to the true essence of the set, which is shards or what do they call them now crime families yeah exactly the corleones yes so we got a theme week here uh we are going to be taking a look at the maestros so we're going to take a look at some grixis decks and also hear from david about some of the stuff that he has been playing lately because it's been a while right i mean you've been busy i know you've been on vacation lately but vacation means more time to play mpgo yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, just a reminder, if you enjoy the show and you'd like to support us, the best way to do that is to go to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Join at whatever level uh, you feel comfortable with, and you get access to the Discord, which has a bunch of people dropping deck ideas, talking about results, you know, hashing over specific cards, sideboard options. You get to support the show. There's a bunch of fun perks. There's a bunch of merchandise. And as we mentioned on the Friday show, you can vote for the uh, the new co-brew card that will be out by the time you listen to this with the Serum Visions uh, podcast. Yes, exactly. Uh, we just recorded that episode yesterday. And there's a lot of spicy ones on the ballot uh, this time around. So... Look for that episode coming out later this week. And if you want to get in on the action and throw us a little support in the process, come sign up for the Patreon. We would love to see you there. Other stuff going on. Reminder that we do have a new YouTube channel. Haven't updated much gameplay lately because I've been traveling myself and didn't have my equipment with me, but I have a league with fight rigging going up and also a league with uh, moderation brew that we talked about a little while back. If you want to see those decks in action so that you can actually cut through the veil and instead of just having to take my word for it 
about why this card doesn't work, you can see for yourself that actually, oh, the card actually did work. It's just that Cave Dan punted for three rounds in a row and <laughs> didn't mention it. The truth is going to be on YouTube. So check that out. And, you know, while you're at it, give us some feedback. Let us know uh, what we can improve because uh, we just want to make this content helpful for you. The truth is out there is what you're saying. It is. It can only, it can only be found on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Maestros or Grixis. This is Xander's clan, and Xander, uh, he had a rough go of it, as far as I understand. He was murked by Obnixilis within the first day of the storyline. So was he like the uh, recently deceased uh, Jimmy Khan? <laughs> I don't know. James Khan? <laughs> James Khan played Sonny Corleone, who was killed in the famous uh, 12 booth uh, shooting scene in The Godfather. Just passed away a week ago. Oh, spoiler alert. Jeez. <laughs> R.I.P. Jimmy Khan. Loved him. And if anyone hasn't seen Thief, that is just an awesome movie. If you like Heat, which a lot of people have seen, Thief is Michael Mann's first movie, and James Khan plays a professional thief. Awesome, awesome movie. Look how they massacred my boy. <laughs> Look how they massacred my boy. Xander was that boy, apparently. <laughs> he has a nice lounge. Let's just focus on, you know. Nice little man cave there. <laughs> exactly. So the, the Grixis Trium Xander's Lounge. If there's a unifying thread for this segment, it probably is the new land. Because there isn't necessarily like a specific card from Grixis that's really captured our imaginations. But we're going to do our best. David, you got a couple lists drawn up here. We'll take a look at those and also check in on some of the Grixis brews that have been doing well in the queues lately that you might not have seen if you have not been tracking developments very closely. Yeah, so the first list we have here, a card I have some interest in and have toyed around with a little bit is um, Maestro's Ascendancy. So that's the Grixis Ascendancy, and it has a lot of text, <laughs> like all the new cards do. But it says that once during each of your turns, you can cast an instant or sorcery from your graveyard. You still have to pay mana for it. And the cost is you have to sacrifice a creature. So the reason I'm kind of interested in this card is we've seen people start to play a lot of Young Pyromancer again. There's been just straight up blue-red, more controlling builds with Young Pyromancer. Um, and we've seen some sacrifice themes return. Like there's a full-on red-black sacrifice deck. There have been people in the sort of blue-red Xerox space adding the sort of claim to the firstborn with some sac effects. Maestro's Ascendancy is kind of this hidden sac effect. It's a free sacrifice effect every turn of the game. It's a card advantage engine against control if you just want to keep like throwing thought teases at them. It turns all of your claim to the firstborns. There's no spell that your opponent can counter or whatever. You just get to sacrifice uh, the creature to cast whatever spell you want from your graveyard. So I think it's just a, uh, a nice addition that Maestro's Ascendancy is, is actually just a worthwhile card. Uh, if you have a Young Pyromancer or Ledger Shredder in play or a Sedgemore Witch, which I have, uh, or an Improbable Alliance, as I have as a one of, you just want to keep that flow of spells going, right? Every turn with Ledger Shredder, you can find a second spell that allows you to loot some more. Every time you cast a spell with Maestro's Ascendancy triggering Young Pyromancer, that puts another creature in play. In general, I've seen people playing like four Sedgemore Witch. That seems like a lot. We were, you know, less than impressed during Sedgemore Witch week. And the reason is that three mana to play a spell that dies to one mana spells, and there's a million of them, only matters if you're putting a lot of pressure on their life total, which this list does not, and most token lists do not. And the extra turn to play the card hurts a lot, right? Because you don't want to play such more witch unless you can cast a spell. So we're really talking about a four mana play. I think that 
Maestro's Ascendancy actually is a better value play long term. Uh, it is more susceptible to graveyard hate, but it also is much better against decks that are good at killing creatures, which many decks are. I think as the formats become very polarized again between control and all these creature decks, you see people having a lot of success basically just playing like mono removal. That's all their deck does. And mono removal decks are really going to struggle to beat a card like uh, Maestro's Ascendancy. Uh, in fact, it's, it's almost impossible for them to beat. If you just think of like red-black, like how are they going to beat this card? Well, I'm starting to see what you're saying, but I mean, I was going to ask you to sell me harder on Maestro's Ascendancy because I just don't see it. Right? Like I initially didn't even realize that you had to sacrifice a creature to activate this thing. I understand why you have to do... I mean, well, you laugh, but like Kess doesn't require you to sacrifice a creature, and Kess is not good. So why would Maestro's Ascendancy, which is like worse than Kess, be a desirable effect? I mean, you're asking me to go into three colors, take a whole turn off, and then I'm not even getting card advantage necessarily. I'm trading a creature, which I may not even have, for a spell that maybe wasn't that powerful. Well, Kess is not legal in Pioneer. If it was, I think it would be pretty good. Hmm. So that's the first thing. <laughs> I'm not proposing playing Maestro's Ascendancy in any format where Kest is legal. But, like, isn't this just a souped-up Dreadhorde Arcanist? It's a Dreadhorde Arcanist that dodges Strangle and Push and Anger of the Gods. All these cards are good against the rest of your deck, right? And you don't want to play... You just talked about it. I forget what list you're playing. You're like, whatever the enchantment was... Oh, the enchantment that makes 1-1 spirits when you cast enchantments. You're like, it sucks. Every time I play out all my enchantments, I play, play into Wrath of God. Yes. Or I play into Anger. This doesn't make you do that. It's like, okay, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm actually sacking my creatures to thought seize you. <laughs> I, I, I don't need to invest heavily in the board per se. Gotcha. So it's also limited to once per turn. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Okay. So you can't go like claim the firstborn, take their creature, sack it to the ascendancy, recast, claim the firstborn, take another creature, sack that to the ascendancy. <laughs> no. But no. You can do it once though. Yes. That's pretty cute. Yeah, so, I mean, do you have a good read on Claim the Firstborn? You know, we talked about Obnixilus a couple weeks ago and, like, why it's made a, a somewhat of a comeback in Pioneer, and both Emmy and myself felt like Claim the Firstborn is such a swingy, powerful card that, like, if Claim is good, then I could see how that deck, the Rectosac deck with Ob, might be, like, powerful again. Now, here we're playing 4 Claim with a much more muted sacrifice theme, but there's still a 4 Claim. Well, we have four village rights, two eaten alive, one deadly dispute, one maestro's ascendancy. So I think that's a lot of sacrifice effects. Well, it becomes like an A plus B kind of thing where, I mean, how, how many effects is that? Like eight? Eight sacrifice effects? Yeah. Yep. Okay. To support four claims. So you're not always going to have it is what I'm saying. No. And I think that's where the uh, sort of ledger shutter comes in, right? In, form, in matchups where it's not good, shutter can loot it away, uh, hopefully. And... You know, then you have your consider opt as to to find your missing piece, right? So you have sort of the the Xerox ability to still like fly through your deck and hopefully find uh, one of the combo pieces. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the, the proof seems to be on your side, right? Uh, a version of Grixis Pyromancer with Sedgemore, which did well last weekend. I think Demonic Tutors played it to a top thirty-two in the challenge, and I saw another player at five zero with their list. They had a similar ratio of like, okay, here's the four claims plus the two eaten alive, three village rights, two deadly disputes. They were using Plum the Forbidden instead of the Maestro's Ascendancy. I'm not sure if I like Plum. I think that card is kind of underperformed. And they have the one Obnixilis main deck. 
Yeah, that's a that's a modded out version of somebody five would with the four Shutter, four Sedgemore Witch, four Young Pyromancer like three weeks ago. Mm. And I think people have been monkeying around with the list since. They were not playing Obnixilis main. Obnixilis is like your hedge. Like this deck is really good against on other aggro decks. The Claim the Firstborn. Again, I think you can sell out against aggro decks. And that you just see a lot of decks are just like black red mono removal, Grixis mono removal. If you're just willing to punt your combo and control matchups, you can crush all the aggro decks if you want. And then you just, like, all right, I'm 3-2 in this league. I play blue-white twice. Like, there's just nothing to do about it. This is trying to kind of go in the middle, right? Like, you're, we're at least main decking some thought seizes. Uh, a Maestro's Ascendancy at least gives you a shot against, you know, these Wrath of God type of effects. It's how much do you want to, 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 you know, maybe it's better to just be good against aggro. You'll always at least 3-2 because you'll play three aggro decks. Uh a league, but your chances of 5-0-ing are pretty low. Unless again, you get to play aggro decks all the time, which sometimes you do, and then it feels awesome. Because you're like, oh, I'm playing, you could play four push and multiple strangle and two dreadbore and, you know, four graveyard trespasser and two Kalidus. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing that surprises me about um, both your list and the, the one that had 5 would earlier is if I'm in Grixis, I assume I'm really safe against small creatures because I have push, strangle, whatever. And then you look real close and it's like, actually, they don't have those cards, right? Like the the one from the 5 O's is not playing any strangle and they're not even playing any fatal push. They're relying on Eaten Alive uh, in the main deck, which it's cool that Eaten Alive can kill Planeswalkers. Actually, it exiles them, so it's a little more permanent if you're trying to kill like a Phoenix or something like that. Or if you're paired against Blue-White, you know, Eaten Alive can get you out of like, a, you know, a Narset or a Teferi or something like that, or a Wandering Emperor. So it's like a better card in some situations than Fatal Push, but I'm just like shocked to see no Fatal Push at all in that build. Now in your build, David, you've got a mix, right? A more balanced mix, two Eaten Alive, two Fatal Push. Well, I think the interaction of Claim the Firstborn and Eaten Alive, again, is so good against all the creature decks. Like it's against humans, against spirits. You claim the Firstborn their creature and then attack them. Do they want to block and trade? No, they take two damage or whatever. Okay, now I eat and alive, sack your creature, kill your creature. The game is functionally over. Like, these decks, spirits needs multiple creatures in play to be threatening. Humans needs multiple creatures in play to be threatening. For two mana, we've just ended the game. This interaction is 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 very powerful, and it gives you, like, crazy tempo positive plays on the first three turns of the game without having to play any sweepers to beat all these small creatures decks. So you think that that kind of one-two punch is more powerful than just like, all right, you play a one-drop, I push it. You play a two-drop, I push it. Well, I don't believe all the way there, which is what these people do. They're not even playing push. I am a coward. (laughs) (laughs) These guys have uh, balls out there. I I would still like to play some fatal push, especially in a deck with all these sack effects. Mm -hmm. Like flashing back push with Maestro's Ascendancy always gets four drops. I'm a little nervous about Grease Fang, which I've started to play a bit more. Uh, You know, the claim the firstborn interactions are not as good there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I like to to kind of split the difference a little bit, but, you know, I think other people are much more comfortable or maybe don't think about like just having terrible, terrible matchups, just being like 20% to win or less against like 20% of the field. And they can just live with that. I, I hate that. I hate, I hate like starting a league and you just happen to play your bad matchup and it's just like, fuck, like, yeah, I just have no chance here, but people just like that red green ramp deck that just couldn't beat any combo or control ever. And it's just like, okay. I just hope I dodge it. Like, I, I, I can't live with that, but I think other people maybe are doing the math correctly in a way that I can't, right? I'm emotionally invested in having some chance <laughs> against everybody. 
They're just saying, like, look, I'm just going to 4 1 a bunch of leagues and I'll just have no chance in that fifth match. And sometimes that fifth match will be another matchup that's good and I'm going to 5 0. So, last question about this list here. I noticed that in your mana base, you're not playing any of the Triomes. Is it because you, you feel like comfortable with the mana as it is with just Pathways and Shocks and Spire Bluff Canals? Yeah, no double mana symbol for anything. No two of the each color required. And even our one drops are mixed up so we can play a Pathway on blue and a Pathway on black and still double spell, right? We can consider into push. We can claim into village rights. So, yeah. I think the uh, Triome thing was overblown. Very few decks, as we pointed out at the time, were playing Triomes. The format's only gotten faster since then. I think maybe playing one or two Triomes, if you're going longer as a control deck, is probably fine, but I don't know that you need to do that. It's also telling most of the control decks are exactly two colors, blue-black, blue-white. No one's actually splashing for the third color. It's not quite worth it, so... I don't think you need to play Triomes in this deck. In a deck that's playing Consider and Opt and a bunch of one-mana interaction, and then all your two-drops want you to spend all your mana. Young Pyromancer rewards you for spending your mana. Ledger Shredder rewards you for spending your third mana. There's not a good time to play that tap land. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, the mana looks very clean and smooth. I'm just worried if there's like a turn where I actually need two blue, and I only have one because, you know, I played a black pathway and a red pathway. And there are, you know, there are some dual lands here, right, where it's not all pathways. I think I've got 11. Yeah. 10, something like that, with a couple fast lands and, uh, you know, five, six shocks. Six to eight shocks, I feel like, is like kind of the right number. Yeah, that sounds good to me. All right, so that is a token-based Grixis list, Young PZ, Sedgemore Witch, and a Sacrifice theme. The next list you have here, well, it looks at first glance like Rakdos Midrange. I see Blood Tithe Harvesters. I see Bonecrusher Giants, I see Graveyard Trespassers, Thought Season Push, right? The staples of black that lets you keep pace with the power of the format. But from there, it gets a little more off the beaten path. I see four Tenacious Underdog, a card that, you know, some decks play two copies. Okay, so we're playing all four, so there must be something we really like about it here. Three copies of Kaito Shizuki. I think you've sung the praises of Kaito in various lists. Two copies of the Royal Scions. Very interesting three-man Planeswalker. The plus one draws and discards, or the other plus one gives plus two plus zero first strike and trample until end of the turn. And four Heart of Kirin. Two-mana vehicle, four-four flying vigilance, cruise for three. That is, you can tap a three-power creature to crew it, or more powerfully, you can just remove a loyalty ability from a Planeswalker to crew the Heart of Kirin on offense or defense. Yeah, this isn't like a thought experiment of mine. So I was thinking like, what what cards have been vexing me lately? And it's like Supreme Verdict, Ledger Shredder, uh, Strangle. Heart of Kieran's actually pretty good against all of them. It's good against the Spirits deck in general. Um, so I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. Heart of Kieran, two mana play. So it gets underneath all the counter magic. It dodges a ton of commonly played removal, like blue-red really has a hard time getting rid of it. Kaito is an interesting card, right? So it, now if I follow that up with Kaito, I'm actually super resistant to any sweepers and sorcery speed removal. And Kaito just draws a card every turn for the rest of the game. It minus ones to make Heart of Kirin a creature, Heart of Kirin attacks, and I plus one Kaito to draw a card. Then it phases out. So even if they have Strangle, I get a whole nother card out of it, at least. 
Um, Heart of Kirin can be used to block, although it doesn't have to block Kaito. Uh, Kaito phases out. And we had a lot of success at times when you draw exactly Heart into Royal Scion. So now we kind of have double the number of three mana Planeswalkers, right? And we didn't want to play too many of them because they don't do anything without other cards. Everything else naturally already has three power. We don't get to play Fable, which obviously has become, you know, a borderline ubiquitous staple in the format because it doesn't make a three power creature. But every other card we're playing is close enough. I think Tenacious Underdog is probably the most speculative card here, but it is a two mana three power card that does reward you for milling it away at times. So you find that Tenacious Underdog does more on average than like a Scrap Heap Scrounger? That was my thought process, is that it does. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like the ability to block. Mm-hmm. Especially because we have five Planeswalkers in the list. My, that that literally is, is about as far as it went. It's like, in a pinch, I can block with it. Yeah. I was playing Underdog in like this Jund mid-range deck a while back, and turn two Underdog felt fine. Like, in a way that turn two Scrap Heap Scrounger did not. Like, I felt like I was getting a real creature that I would attack or block with. And get some value out of, whereas Scrap Heap Scrounger, like, a lot of the time you cast it and you just know your opponent is breathing a sigh of relief. They're like, uh, I'm not worried <laughs> about taking three damage and that's not going to interact with my creatures unless I choose to block. So, yeah, underdog, scrappy little card. Uh, would be happy to see if it pulls its weight here. Yeah, Blood Tide Harvester, you know, is sort of a re- removal spell slash 3-2 creature that can crew heart. All these guys are really good bodies. If you just turn two, it's very likely on turn two, you'll be able to attack with one of your three, two. So then Kaito is a very tempo positive play on turn three, right? Kaito's only good is what we've kind of found out when you're ahead. Mm. So we have all these turn two drops that let us attack, hopefully pretty freely. If not, Royal Scions is actually a huge beating, right? Like Royal Scions make Heart of Kieran a creature attack for six in the air. And then I'm left with a, a five loyalty Planeswalker. If we're on the play, we're just so far ahead at that point, right? It's, it's hard. They have to attack Royal Science with a bunch of cards to get through it, uh, to kill it. I have a Heart of Kirin back to block. Giving Blood Tide Harvester or Tenacious uh, Underdog plus two plus O and First Strike and Trample is, is very powerful. Making your Graveyard Trespasser able to attack, you know, into stuff is very important. I found it getting brick walled a lot by Mono Green. Right, you play your trespasser, you fine. It seems like it's good in these mid-range beers. They play a four-four creature for three mana on their turn two. You can't even attack with your trespasser a lot of times. You can't threaten their planeswalkers. Heart of Kieran flies over their three mana four-four. Um Royal Scions buffs all your two and three mana creatures so that they actually profitably uh exchange with all of the three mana creatures from green. And then giving first strike means you like win all the attacks. So if you're if you're playing against red black. You know, they don't they don't have profitable blocks. The last card that really jumps out is you have a one of Riel the Everwise in your three slot. Riel is legendary creature star three, right? Where their power of Riel is equal to the number of instants and sorceries in your graveyard. So it's it's base stats range from you know Sylvan Curia to hit to actually like a decent amount of damage whenever Riel connects. So I, I could see plus twoing or plus oneing rather the royal scions on real to get a good chunk of damage in but what about that second ability right whenever you discard for the first time each turn real lets you draw that many cards so how much support is in here we have the blood tokens from blood tithe harvester we have kaito and we have royal scions it was actually a fair amount um this is a really like 
interesting inclusion here, right? Like, I, I hope that this pans out for you because if Riel can like just pull her weight in a deck that is not a dedicated, you know, draw discard deck or not even a dedicated Riel deck, but you know, as a one of, um, that's pretty cool. Also, just a reminder: so Kenzin, if you want to play Odawara, these cards all work with Riel. You don't think about <laughs> it, but any channel, any channel effect. Okay, I did not realize that. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it until the first time I did it, and then like I bounced something, yeah, you know, like uh, uh, the Grease Fang to not die, and then I like drew a card. I was like, oh man, that's insane! <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> not only am I not dying, I'm drawing a card. <laughs> so yeah, it started out as like a two of, and I was playing a bunch more three mana Planeswalkers, but I thought I had to be a little bit more responsible. I was like, all right, start with one, you know, play the full suite of Bone Crusher, which is kind of mediocre against a lot of decks, but is never bad. And just see how much it comes up, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, so those are two Grixis lists from David that are not going too heavy on the new cards. But we would be remiss if we did not at least talk about Corpse Appraiser. That, I think, has been the standout Grixis or Maestro's card from the set. I'm not ready to call it a staple of Pioneer yet, but you will routinely see Grixis lists now in the 5-0s playing as many as four copies of Corpse Appraiser. Corpse Appraiser is 3-3 Vampire Rogue for Grixis mana, that is blue, black, red. When it enters a battlefield, exile up to one target creature card from any graveyard, and then if you do that, you get to cast a strategic planning. That is, you look at your top three cards, one to your hand, two to the graveyard, potentially setting up your next Corpse Appraiser. Yeah, so this is a card that a whole suite of pros played in like a Grixis Vampires list in Standard. I think that encouraged people to start exploring in Pioneer, and there there have been five O's with Grixis Vampires lists. You've kind of highlighted a couple of them here. And then D Jeff WX from our Discord has been playing basically just like mono removal Grixis with four corpse appraiser. And so you have all these ways to put a creature in your opponent's graveyard by turn three, right? You've got one Blood Chief's Thirst, four Fatal Push, one Strangle, four Thoughtseize, which can take a creature. Three Drown in the Lock, two Dreadbore, Kroxa can make them discard a creature, and then the Stomp Half of Bonecrusher Giant. And if you play against creature decks, this card is just so good, right? Or if your opponent like kind of foolishly discards a Phoenix a little too early. Mm. The the ceiling on this card is so high, right? It's Let's assume your mana is perfect. You play your three mana, three, three. It casts, you know, a Super Ponderer or whatever the hell you want to call it, and... You know, the body is reasonable. Like I said, I've started to find like 3-3s three are actually getting outsized pretty commonly, but in mid-range matchups, it's actually fine, right? It just trades with their uh, Trespasser. It blocks their Fable uh, token. So, yeah, I, I think this card is like a very polarizing card. I think it's awesome against creature decks, and I think it's bad against everything. Well, obviously, it's bad against decks that don't have creatures. Um yeah, so DJFWX uh, has been doing great with this deck. I think they have three trophies and a bunch of 4-1s in the last few weeks. Um, just look at the list that they're playing most recently. You look at it and it's like, this is just Rakdos, right? It's got Blood Ties, it's got Fables, Bone Crusher, Fatal Push Thoughts So what's the pull into blue? Corpse Appraiser here is a 4-of that's basically replacing Graveyard Trespasser, saying, hey, we believe in Corpse Appraiser more than Trespasser. Then, because we've done the work of making our mana base produce blue, and there's, I think, four copies of Xander's Lounge yep, uh, to support that, well, 
we're gonna reliably have Liu, so let's also play Drown of the Lock standout card, even though it's like not always on like it is in modern. Like it's on enough that this split card counterspell terminate is super powerful. And then the last blue card in the main is Nicole Bullis the Ravager. This is the four mana Nicole Bullis, four four flying creature, that's a ravenous rat. Now it also flips to a planeswalker on the back, but uh, what D Jeff has found is that basically you just never flip it, right? Its role is to close the game and it's good enough at that role. Just giving you card advantage, board presence, and attacking a few times. Not to say that it never flips, but that's that's like not why it's here. Yeah, I think decks that want it to flip often play like four mana Chandra, right? They can give you the boost, uh, the extra mana to get up to that seven. But this list is kind of, you know, kill your opponent's creatures. You build up your board state, you know, in a, in a card positive way. You know, Blood Tithe, Harvester, and uh, the Appraiser, and Fable all sort of put creatures on the board and give you some type of value back. And then, yeah, it's just beat down time. Like your opponent's down a couple cards and you've got a bunch of three threes and four threes and three twos and four, four flyings and you just get in there. Yeah. So I think there's like maybe a room to iterate on this list. I know D Jeff is uh, testing an Angrath, the flame chained and the five slot right now, instead of the third copy of Nicole Bolas. LAA one, one in our discord uh, has also been interested in this and they've proposed like a Yorian version going up to 80 cards because a lot of these effects benefit from blinking. Corpse Appraiser has an ETB, so does Blood Tithe Harvester. LA11 is saying, okay, if I'm going to do that, maybe I want to add like Omen of the Seas. Maybe I want to add Trial of Ambitions. So like, there's still a concept to work out there, but I mean, LA11 is the player who probably single-handedly put Blood Tithe Harvester on the map in Pioneer. So... I, I will trust their findings if they can arrive at a good Yorian version of this Grixis Corpse Appraiser list. Yeah, I mean, the especially when you start talking about Yorian, then Fires of Invention gets very interesting. Fires of Invention has a lot of synergy with Corpse Appraiser and Nikki B, right? Like, you can play Nikki B for free, maybe flip it that same turn. Corpse Appraiser, anytime you're like adding to the board and then you're drawing another card that you can maybe play for free that same turn, you just have a bunch of super tempo positive plays with Fires of Invention and some of these cards that replace themselves. Yeah. Yeah, the, the last thing that Corpse Appraiser does, it, it is a vampire. So we've seen like a new style of Grixis vampires where Corpse Appraiser is like your featured three drop. You have Soarin' Imperious Bloodlord, super powerful Planeswalker, and Blood Tithe Harvester format staple that i mean this card might even be good enough for modern I'm, I'm not sure so once you have blood tithe and corpse appraiser as your kind of featured vampires you get to start to rethink everything right so th- i think the more popular version of grixis vampires now still plays gifted etherborns and kalidas no longer plays knight of the ebon legion no longer plays dusk legion zealot and they've actually replaced uh champion of dusk at five mana with evelyn the covetous a really interesting new card Two five flying for five. When Evelyn or any other vampire enters the battlefield under your control, uh, you get kind of that Tybalt effect where you and your opponents East Isle their top cards and then you're allowed to cast those cards. Yeah, the vampire's deck is... I have not seen it much, but it seems like there's like a one in almost every five O-Jump in Pioneer now. So it's definitely like a list, right, that has had some staying power. All these lists are 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 functionally fatal push thoughts. These lists, right? And then, like, what what do you want your value plays to be? Honestly, it's fatal push four thoughts. These four fable, right? I mean, those those are the twelve. 
These lists are not aggressive. They're functionally the only mid-range list that exists. Start with those 12 cards. What do you want to build around them? The Vampire's list, I think, has the ability to go way over the top. Evelyn dodges tons of commonly played removal. Push being dodged and all the four damage sources that are out everywhere. Five toughness on a black creature, uh, as we've talked about before, is just huge. So I like her, actually, as your top end over the other one. Uh, I, I think the ability to just go way over the top if they can't kill her, right? Your opponent maybe has two Dreadbores or something, if you're thinking of a mid-range matchup. If they don't draw that, you, you never block with Evelyn. They don't draw it right away. Like, you're just about to go up like a zillion cards, and then what? They're playing <laughs> some joke like me. He's playing Graveyard Trespasser. Like, okay, resolves my turn. <laughs> <laughs> so is it fair to say that there's, like, no one stands up to play aggro anymore? Like, Knight of the Ebon Legion is not even an attractive card in these decks? I think there's no incentive to play aggro in a disruptive way because I think the best disruptive aggro cards are all actually white creatures. So the disruptive aggro deck is humans uh, or the human variants. Or I actually love the I love the Esper list that we built um, hmm. around the uh, one four ward connive dude. I'm spacing on the name Rafine scheming seer. Rafine, I, lo I love that. I love that list. I think that's the disruptive aggro list. I think these lists have correctly recognized that the power level goes up if you make your mana a little worse. There is no red-black fast land, so you don't get paid off for splashing at all, and I don't think black has enough tools. Other than the two one-mana spells, I actually think black is the worst color in the format by a lot. Uh, and I don't even think Fatal Push tends to be very good in these mono-black lists because they have no way to turn it on. Mm -hmm. So adding red is almost necessary because Fable lets you loot away the thought seasons that are bad or the pushes that are bad, and then it always turns on your push because you get a treasure. So, like, that combo is the key. And once you add red, you're going to be slow. So I think what they've realized is, like, red-black midrange is nothing special. It plays a bunch of crappy cards. It's just a bunch of, like, doofy three-drops. Why not play three-drops that have, like, way higher upside? Like, I think the average value, maybe, of Graveyard Trespasser is a little better than Corpse Appraiser. But when Corpse Appraiser is really good, it's way better than Graveyard Trespasser, right? It just has a, it has a lower floor and a higher ceiling. So I think people are just like, why not just high roll, crush all the aggro matchups, and then I'll fix the the combo, everything else in the sideboard, and maybe I'll just go over the top of other mid-range decks. And I think we're seeing from the success of uh, Jeff and some of these vampire players that, that that's a, a very reasonable thing to be doing in the format. Yeah, well said. All right, anything else for Grixis or the Maestros? I'm excited to try to get some uh, sweet, sweet screenshots of me just beating people down with the 4-4 vehicle. <laughs> just running over spirits. Like, what is Mono Blue going to do? <laughs> I do love Heart of Kieran. Um, I've been let down many a time by it, but, I mean, who knows? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe this is the deck, against all odds, a Grixis semi-aggro Heart of Kieran deck. So let's shift gears. We've paid enough respects to New Capenna here. Let's just go way back in time. It's a free-for-all here, and let's just pick out a few of the favorites. David, you've been brewing with some wild stuff lately. Off-syllabus, we might say. <laughs> and I just want to hear about some of these decks. Yeah, so I get I get really intrigued by certain like card combinations, um, and I just feel like there has to be something there, and so I just start like building lists around them. So we play a lot with extraction specialists, and I think we found a card was just like on generic power levels, just super good. We've seen humans adopt it in various builds in Pioneer and Modern. A card that on basically like flat rate is good enough for Modern, like really opens my eyes. Like wow, this card has to be awesome, right? Mm -hmm. And we've seen like for Fable, right? It seemed like all right, it was kind of gimmicky. It only worked with. Winota, then it's like people in modern are just playing it. It's like this card is way, you know, 
you were on this card way before I was. Like, Fable's just a way better card than we realized. So it's like, okay, Extraction Specialist is really good with Charming Prince. But I wanted, like, something else. So Charming Prince is really good with Humble Defector, <laughs> which is a strange interaction. So Humble Defector, Humble Defector is one in a red for a 2-1. Draw two cards. Target opponent gains control of Humble Defector. And you can only activate Humble Defector on your turn. Charming Prince is very strange text that says... You actually exile a creature that you own, not that you control. So you don't have to do it in response. You don't have to, you know, vial it in with other vial or something in response to activating Humble Defector. You can just activate Humble Defector, give it to your opponent, cast Charming Prince. It can be one of the two cards you draw off your Humble Defector if you're a believer. Um, then you get it back. The outcome of that is that you get two two-power creatures that each drew a card when they came into play. There is not a single two-mana 2-2 two -two in the entire format of Pioneer that is a two-mana 2-2 two -two draw so you're like you, it seems like you're going to a lot of work you're going to a lot of work to get an outcome that no other card exists so you're getting two of these cards that are in theory too powerful for pioneer right they, they would not print a two mana two two that just cycles or maybe they would i don't know no i think humble defector is like so powerful that yeah it has to have this crazy drawback <laughs> like yeah you just you just never see this card played i think that the last time we tried to play humble defector one of the conclusions, which was very depressing, was that opponents would eventually wise up and figure out that if if you're playing Humble Defector, you must have a plan for it, so they should just kill it right away. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, because it doesn't have haste, right? So you've done all this work, crafted the perfect brew to take advantage of the Defector, and then it just dies for removal every time. So Extraction Specialist is now, like, very, very intriguing to me. Like, all right, now I've done the work of building a Humble Defector deck, and I can get back the Defector once it dies, and... My extraction specialist happens to synergize already with the Prince Charming. Um, so like this little three-way of synergy and value is, uh, yeah, I, I want to get in on that. Yeah, and the extraction specialist, you know, conditions is like, all right, the defector can't attack or block. It's like, sweet. I did not want to attack or block this. I want to draw two freaking cards, man. Let's go. Um, so yeah, all that works very well in theory, right? Those, those, so those are the 12 cards, right? I was like, all right. We've seen, like, play two drop, force our opponent to kill it, Extraction Specialist it back. That's been a thing that's been good enough. Extraction Specialist having lifelink is good against humans. It trades very positively against removal-heavy decks. We just talked about a bunch of sort of mono-removal decks. You know, trades with Corpse Appraiser, they both functionally drew a card. Uh, but ours is actually on the board, right? So it's very it's actually like a tempo-positive exchange with cards like uh, Bone Crusher Giant, Corpse Appraiser, uh, Graveyard Trespasser. Blocks all kinds of humans. In the late game, all our Charming Princes are in the graveyard. Extraction Specialist is a army in a can. The question that you point out is like, okay, we have one card that works with Humble Defector, Charming Prince. What's another card we can play? Mm -hmm. Touch the Spirit Realm is interesting to me. Touch the Spirit Realm, two and a white. Enchantment, exile target creature or artifact until Touch the Spirit Realm leaves play. Or one and a white, channel it, functionally blink a permanent. Again, does not have to be a permanent you control. So you can draw the Touch the Spirit Realm after you've activated your Humble Defector. Also, Extraction Specialist is a card we would love to blink, right? So we can touch the Spirit Realm and uh, Extraction Specialist in play. Extraction Specialist comes back, gets something back from the graveyard. So now we have a bunch of cards that kind of work well together. And then the question is, like, how do we turn this into value? So I'm playing a bunch of cheap one-mana interaction, portable hole, strangle. Just trade one card for one card. Uh, for Luminarch Aspirant, again, another two-drop that they're heavily encouraged to kill on turn two. That turns our Extraction Specialist into something valuable. 
Uh, I'm playing for Bonecrusher Giant. They're super medium, but what, what can you do? And then Fable of the Mirror Breaker. The one disappointment with Fable of the Mirror Breaker is there is an existing bug. I don't know if they fixed it in the last update, but the flipped Fable targeting Humble Defector makes a token that never dies. <laughs> no, what? Yeah, it copies Humble Defector. You get to tap it, draw two, give it to your opponent. In theory, it's supposed to die at the end of turn, right? That's super sweet. One mana, draw yeah. two for the rest of the game. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Your opponent just untaps with the token. The trigger goes on the stack to sacrifice at the end of your turn, but it does not force the, your opponent to sacrifice the token. Oh, so come on. Come on. Yeah, it's tough. So looking at Touch the Spirit Realm right now, I actually did not realize that the channel ability could target your opponent's stuff. I knew that the front side was intended to be used as like Oblivion Ring, but I've only seen the channel used to like, you know, blink your ephemerate, or sorry, blink your solitude or grief. Um, but yeah, the fact that you can actually draw towards that later does make it like a little bit less risky to just blind activate the Humble Defector and assume you will eventually draw a blink effect. Yeah, it also is, if you want to think of it, like it's an instant speed way to blink uh, Grease Fang, which I've done. Like it only buys you a turn, but now Grease Fang is actually in play, so it can just die to Strangle, for instance. Oh, okay. So it actually blinks it until the end step. Yep. Very nice. Okay. Yeah, so you actually tested this this list. Yeah, I went 2-3. I lost uh, one match because of the Fable interaction. Uh, this is actually like a modified list. I found I was way up on cards. I just needed a way to turn it into value. So I added Luminarch Aspirants, again, to just give me a little more closing speed. Again, I wanted two drop that forces them to interact. And then I increased my one-mana interaction, Portable Hole and Strangle, just because I need to turn all the cards in my hand into some kind of value on the board. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's a Boros version of Charming Prince Extraction Specialist Humble Defector. That little package um, could, in theory, go into other decks, right? So you actually have another version here to propose. Yeah, so I was like, if I'm up on cards, what's the best way to actually turn that into interaction? And black is the best way, right? We have all these ways that we're like blinking permanents and stuff. So push is actually amazing. And then sometimes against like, again... Slower decks, mid-range decks. Thoughtseize is good. Another way to, again, turn a card into a card immediately. Claim the Firstborn actually has a sweet interaction with Humble Defector. <laughs> so if it's your turn, let's say it's your turn three. I play Humble Defector. My opponent plays whatever, Thing in the Ice. I choose not to be, be afraid of Thing in the Ice. I attack, I attack, tap Humble Defector, give it to my opponent, draw two. Claim the Firstborn, my own Humble Defector. It untaps, comes back to my control. I tap it again, draw two, give it back to them. Then I cast Charming Prince and blink it back. Uh, so I've just gone up you know, a zillion cards. So Claim the Firstborn, obviously great with Village Rite. So we're playing that little like combo. It's also great with, um, I'm playing a Butcher of the Horde as a cool sacrifice effect that also, again, I'm trying to find a way to like end the game once I'm up all these cards. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it also works with Humble Defector. It just, it, it's a one mana draw two if Humble Defector's in play, which is uh, super sweet. Butcher of the Hordes is like the Mardu Siege right now. You don't see it very often, but it is a free sacrifice outlet and a closer at the same time. Yeah, so like if you just imagine I play Humble Defector on two, they stomp it. I play Extraction Specialist, get back Humble Defector. They, whatever, play some three drop. I yeah, They play Fable, let's say. I play Butcher, activate Humble Defector with that trigger on the stack, sack it, give uh, Butcher of the Horde haste, and I attack for eight power, and I'm actually, I have a full hand. I've, I've replaced every card I've played. That's that's sweet. 
Have you tried this deck yet? This looks awesome. No, I haven't. Um, I was, I'm still debating, like, I have these two fables in the deck. Again, I was totally wrong about the card. It's way more powerful than I thought. Being able to copy Extraction Specialist with the flipped fable is insane. Uh, being able to copy a Butcher of the Horde that comes into play um, is insane. But I don't know if the, the bug is fixed. So I don't know if I have the heart to, like, go out there like, all right, in theory, I should copy the Stumble Defector uh, and draw two, <laughs> but... But yeah, in general, in general, I just I like the look of this list more. I just like having super efficient one mana removal because Humble Defector gives you all these cards, right? And you're kind of going to a lot of work to fill your hand up with stuff, and then you just need to turn it into something. And so the way to do that is to play super efficient one mana spells. So now we have 16 one mana spells, often that are trading a card for card uh, very efficiently. And the mana isn't so bad, right? Because we have both fast lands. Yeah. Yeah, one thing you don't want to do with Humble Defector is if, if the big payoff is to draw extra cards, you don't want to degrade your own card quality so far that you actually can't even win drawing extra cards. And there's a risk of that if you're, you know, your main plan is like attack with Lumark Aspirants and hope the opponent gives up. Um, that might work or it might not. Whereas, you know, Thought Seize and Push, you know, you can at least rely on these to disrupt the opponents and you have a lot of removal in this black version, plus more closing power from the Butchers. Right. And like Village Rights is a fine card. Again, you can activate Humble Defector, sack it with your Village Rights. Then we're playing Young Pyromancer. That gives us fodder for Village Rights. Um, and then Claim the Firstborn gets attracted because we have these sacrifice effects, including Butcher the Horde, which can sacrifice Humble Defector, 1-1 one, one tokens we get from Young Pyromancer, or cards we're taking from our opponent with Claim the Firstborn, or like a Claim the Prince that can't, uh, uh, excuse me, a Charming Prince that can't attack or block, uh, you know, if it's brought back by Extraction Specialist or something like that. So again, it's that sort of all these cards have slight synergies with each other, right? And, and the theory is that hopefully they blend together into a nice creamy package. <laughs> so looking at these two lists, man, I got really nostalgic for Flicker Wisp. That would be like the perfect Pioneer level card. It's not too powerful. Yeah. It'd be great in Pioneer, like pretty interesting and fair, I think. Um, but if you want to do that, right, if you want to have more copies of the Charming Prince rescue effect, you have to go to Modern. Where yes. we've actually done this before. Like we, I think one of the first cars from Eldraine we, we did quickly identified Charming Prince as one of the top three cars from Eldraine to, to brew with first. And we have some pretty interesting lists. Like we actually, you had drawn up a Humble Defector list that used Dubious Challenge. <laughs> that list was sweet. I just missed a 5 0. That was one of my like big regrets. I just missed a 5 0 the first list, first time we played it. And then I never got that close again. And I don't think anyone ever 5 0'd with this particular shell. It's like, man, I feel like if you 5-0 once with some of these weird shells, I feel like 50 people just get inspired to like work on it and then they like improve it and then it maybe turns into a real deck and it just never happened. So a little trip down memory lane here. People are don't know what we're talking about. Dubious Challenge is kind of like Collected Company. <laughs> it's a lot, a lot like Collected Company. Three and a green, sorcery. Look at your top 10 cards of your library. Exile up to two creature cards from among them. Target opponent chooses one of the exiled creatures and puts it onto the battlefield under their control, and then you get the rest. Um, so what you want to do is you want to cast Dubious Challenge, and then in your top 10, you want to find Emrakul plus Flickerwisp, or Emrakul plus Charming Prince, the 15-mana Emrakul. That way, whatever they choose, right, they can choose the Emrakul, then you'll get the Charming Prince and blink the Emrakul. Same thing with Flicker Wisp. So they actually just have to like take the Flicker Wisp themselves and give you the Emrakul. 
mathematically that's not going to happen every time so you have to play like slightly worse creatures you have to play like also some world spine worms also some woodfall primus and in order to like make the numbers work out we've got like a glimmer points tag here we've got a trustani discordant you had the idea to put in through the breach as like a backup way to make your fatties like do something for you so you have three copies of through the breach as well and we had the four Arbor L for Utopia Sprawl package, so we could actually do it quite early. So they're actually encouraged to keep in their cheap removal to stop the Arbor L from going off. Exactly. And what made this really spicy was like, okay, you actually found room for four Humble Defectors because you have both Charming Prince and Flicker Wisp. So now you have like this other, like this whole other thing going on of like, I'm going to blink my Defector while also building towards this uh, rather dubious, uh, dubious endgame. So you could, in theory, like add Extraction Specialists to this list. Uh, it might come at the expense of like through the breach, or maybe you don't trust Arbor Elf anymore and just want to play like a slower build. I'm not totally sure. Yeah, I mean the thing that sucks is solitude is yes. one of the reasons why we don't see a lot of through the breach anymore. Period. We don't see blue red through the breach or anything else, and I think it, it it's chalked up to solitude. And solitude does not fit well in our deck because it would just <laughs> if our opponent got it, they'd. Yeah, mess us up with it, and it, if they just have it in their hand, right? The a, a fourth or turn three Emrakul, it's not uh, what it used to be. <laughs> if you're not casting it on turn three with a with that free turn, it, it's probably just going to give you 15 life. Yeah, Emrakul pass is like not viable in, in modern anymore. Solitude, even Otawara, like the decks that don't have Solitude have Otawara, so it's like okay, <laughs> all yep. right. Yep, yep. So much for that. However, the other home for humble defector. Uh, that we also were playing in that Charming Prince week was just like Death and Taxes. And it seems like you could, in theory, add Extraction Specialist to that list, right? I'm just looking at a, a 5-0 Death and Taxes list from last week. It has two Charming Prince and three two Extraction Specialist. So if I wanted to play Humble Defector, what would I have to give up? And basically, I my conclusion is there's there's two ways to do it. One is you cut some disruption. So like in, in this 5-0 list from Charon's Obol, I could cut Lean and Arbiter and like Archon of Ameria. That will give me enough room in the deck to play four Humble Defectors, go up to four Charming Prince, and like maybe add a Flicker Wisp. Alternately, I could cut the Stoneforge package. You know, there's a Stoneforge and three equipment. That's seven cards. That gives me room for the Humble Defectors and, you know, more of the Charming Prince slash Flicker Wisp. Yeah, I mean, Lean and Arbiter is just terrible. It was terrible six years ago when I played it at multiple GPs. <laughs> it cannot be better now. I'm stunned people are still playing this card, so I know what I would want to cut. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, it might be worth trying. I, I'm tempted to try this. The big draw is Extraction Specialist, right? Like, if that is a card that we've concluded is good enough and that already synergizes with Charming Prince, right? I mean, the logic still works in Modern. It's just like, is the surrounding shell going to keep up? And here you do get Solitudes, so... Four Solitudes and Death and Taxes makes perfect sense, and that rewards me even further for having Charming Prince and Flicker Wisp. It would kind of make me want to play, um, maybe tweak out, again, I don't, I don't know how feasible this is, but I, I'd at least consider building a Solitude, Flicker Wisp, whatever, with the uh, the um, the one white, the Ephemerate package. Mm. Like, Ephemerate is great with Solitude, mm -hmm. it's okay with flicker wisp and some of these other cards and then it's awesome with the two one like the first time you activate it you just you know whatever draw to blink it in response and then next turn whatever flash in solitude with the trigger on the stack or violent something else 
I'd at least want to look at what that list would look like. So it, yeah. again, it would be way less disruptive. We wouldn't play Thalia, obviously, in that list. But drawing extra cards just matters a lot more if you have a bunch of free elementals to play. Like you just get the tempo back so quickly. And if you're playing Ephemerate anyway, mm-hmm. then like Flashing in Solitude is super attractive or whatever. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we've seen Moldrifter used for that effect uh, in like Esper versions of that deck, but that's like a little right. slower, so I'm not sure. Hmm. All right, that's a little humble defector detour, but I mean, we love this card. It's <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. Amazing card. Yes. All right, David, um, anything else that you've been working on that you want to talk about? I mean, you've been playing some wild stuff lately. Yeah, so I built a blue-red list. Damon was really sad because he was getting ready for this uh, Pioneer RCQ, and he loved the blue-red control shell in Pioneer that was playing, you know, three or four Narsets and some number of Collective uh, Defiances. Um, and so, obviously, Collective Defiance is a fine card, right? It can be just a three-mana sorcery speed removal spell, mm-hmm. but it can also, if you, whatever, Narset on three, your opponent doesn't kill it, I can Collective Defiance target you, and, you know, you lose all the cards in your hand except for one because of Narset's uh, static ability. So I was like, okay, let's see what we can do with that. So I, you know, three Narset, three Collective Defiance seems reasonable enough. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in playing Riel because Riel lets you, if I don't have Narset in play, my opponent kills it or, you know, there's a lot of aggression, right? Narset just dies. I can play Riel, target myself with Collective Defiance. So like four <laughs> mana, kill your creature. Let's say I have three cards in my hand after I cast that. Discard three, draw three, and then draw three again for Riel. So it's like a four mana concentrate that kills a creature. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just a crazy, crazy card. And then I wanted to try out Riel with Ledger Shredder because if you imagine a world where you leave up two mana on turn two for your sensor or whatever, say I cast sensor on your three drop, I cast Ledger Shredder plus a one drop on turn three draw and discard and then turn four i cast riel cast another card then ledger shredder loots for free i'm not i'm not casting any looting spells i'm just casting my normal consider strangle etc uh then riel triggers so you actually start going up uh, a ton of cards off of your ledger shredder so i was just interested in seeing like how all these pieces fit together yeah i mean ever since ledger shredder we're now in the age where incidental looting is like a realistic plan right you're not playing a single card i mean unless you count is it charm that like is only here to loot, but even is a even is a charm is like fine. Oh yeah, I countered collected company with it. I you know shocked some random the three two vampire that makes it blood. <laughs> I mean it's not awesome, but uh, it does you know it does a thing. So you end up with an is it deck that's playing three real the everwise, and your discard effects are sensor, ledger shredder, collective defiance, and is it charm? Yeah. Yep. So and again. Odawara and Sokenzin. That's true, yes. So we're playing two Odawara, so we get to actually like sneak an extra land in there. Made cheaper by Riel, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, Odawara plus Riel was awesome. I, I was stunned by how amazing that, that is. Three mana, bounce anything, draw a card is like better than a kicked into the Royal. Because you, you can bounce almost anything. I just, it was crazy how good that was. <laughs> All right, so how did this deck do for you? First league I played, I 4 one and it felt really smooth. Like, I played a bunch of, a handful of decks where the Narset Collective Defiance interaction was very good. My cyborg plan was pretty solid. 
And then the second league, I think I went two, three, and it felt very clunky. And it felt like the cards I had were not quite lining up well. The treasure crews, they would still attack my graveyard, even though it wasn't good to do so. Like I, I added a treasure cruise uh, from my first list. It was very bad, but I think it was just random chance. My opponent just kind of had the right removal at the right time. I was missing land drops. So it feels like the truth of the shell is somewhere between those two. Um, I think I need to monkey around with it a little more. I don't think Bone Crusher Giant is what I want. I don't I don't know what I want, but I don't think it's Bone Crusher Giant. I found the card to be very underwhelming. It's only good in mid-range matchups specifically, right? It kills the front half of uh Fable, and then it and then it's a blocker, right? That that's a nice interaction. But against like blue red, it has no targets, right? They they're playing Shredder. Killing Phoenix is just terrible. It doesn't kill thing in the ice. It's so slow. Um so I think I need to go back in the lab and, and find a bunch more cards that are much more efficient uh, to, to see what I can do there. I mean, would Fable be a consideration? Like, that's never bad. It, it loots some of the time. Yeah, I, I think at first I was thinking like Fable plus Riel is like way too slow. But so, I mean, I, Fable's fine, I think, without doing any of the other stuff. I, I, I do think I should just play for Fable and, and just like lean into it. Hmm. All right, well... If you do get to test that, I'm excited to see how that goes. But yeah, Riel plus target yourself with Collective Defiance is awesome. Narset plus target them with Collective Defiance is awesome. So it, no, <laughs> it, it, there's something there for sure. I don't know what it is, but it's 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 beautiful. I love that. All right, so that is Riel the Everwise, a little blast from the past, but not nearly as far back as this next deck here. Um, we were talking about some card i forgot what it was and you're like oh yeah i wanted to play sadisi brood tyrant and i'll you know that perfectly fits and like you say sadisi brood tyrant like what and yet you were dead serious you have a list here with four copies of sadisi brood tyrant um all the way back from kamagawa this is four mana for a three three naga wizard whenever it etbs or attacks you mill yourself for three and then you get a zombie you get a two two zombie assuming you hit a creature when you did that yeah, so the card that triggered it for me actually was Liliana of the Last Hope. It's a card that you don't see people play very much, but I actually think it's pretty good against Mono Green and it's pretty good against Spirits. Um, it's just like a proactive thing to do. It's a it's a Planeswalker they have to attack. Often it can plus to actually kill a creature because there were, at the time, Mono Green was was very dominant. This is a couple weeks ago. So if you just like kill their first creature on mm. the play, then by the time they cast their like second elf, your um, Liliana resolves and kills it. And then it just, you know, eventually ultimates and it's hard for them to, to beat that. So I was like, oh, well, that's actually kind of cute with Sadisi because then the minus two can actually like make a zombie or fill up your graveyard and then find the creature that you want. And I wanted to try out Tassiger because it's like, all right, Delve is broken, blah, blah, blah. Should the blue Delve spells be broken? It's like, well, Tassiger was the card in standard that saw a ton of play. Uh, is that any good? Then I kind of had to like fill out my deck with enough creatures. And then I was thinking the five mana Liliana, Liliana Death's Majesty, her plus is actually great with Sidisi in play. So this is a deck that kind of takes advantage of the graveyard, but isn't uh, like if, if people are playing hearse as a graveyard hate card, like if they bring it in against you, like Sidisi still triggers and Liliana plus twos to make a zombie and then it mills two. So she can plus two to make two zombies as a five mana planeswalker if Sidisi's already in play. Like that's really good. And they both Sidisi attacking and, and Liliana plusing moves towards finding Titan, which eventually you could just 
Liliana in a play, right? So I was basically building like my classic like Saltai mid-range list that kind of has the out to go way over the top because it can find Titan of Industry over the course of a couple turns and then play it for much less than seven mana. And then the fallback plan is like play Tassiger, which is a five toughness black creature that we've talked about to like double spell, right? You get to like cast an old Rutstein, cast Tassiger on turn four or something like that where you're making very tempo positive play. Every time you propose a list with Liana Death's Majesty, I feel like I'm reading the card for the first time. Like I had no <laughs> idea this mills two cards. So plus one makes a zombie and mills two. And then the minus three is your zombify effect. Yeah. So if you're just staring at each other, like I played black red a bunch of times and just crushed it with this list. It's like you have a CDC in play. They play whatever. Fable, right? Awesome card. Then I play Liliana plus her, just make two zombies. Like we're just staring at each other, but Liliana's just upticking to eventually finding Titan. Like I'm just faux tutoring for it almost. And like every time I attack with Sadisi or every time an upkeep happens with old Rutstein in play or Liliana minuses, I just have a certain percent chance to find a Titan. So you got to try this. I mean, how good was Sadisi? She's really good in mid-range mirrors. So if you think you're going to play a lot of red-black, if you're going to play a bunch of these like vampire people or corpse appraiser or any of that kind of stuff, she's really good. Um, but she's not good against the polar opposites of the field. So I went 3-2 twice, lost to mono-green twice, and blue-white control and spirits. So I, whatever, I went 6-4 and four and just beat up on humans and uh, red-black, Grixis, um, Esper Greasefang. And then I trotted it out the other night and went 0204. I lost a blue white control and uh Connorman 11 playing like mono red Embercleave. And I was just like, all right, I'm off it. <laughs> <laughs> so still have technically a winning record or no, I think I'm six and six, I guess then, but was six and four in two leagues. And then just, <laughs> just so frustrating. Like you just open out against blue white, you know, you keep a reasonable hand, but it doesn't have thought seize and you just can't win. Right. With these mid range decks against blue white, they just, they just beat you, but you have to play all this removal because there's all these mid range, other decks to, and, and aggro decks to play. So just kind of the mid range brewers dilemma. I think the real struggle with this deck is like how mediocre Tassiger is. And I don't know that there's anything to be done about it. Mediocre in the sense that, you're relying on Tassiger to be your other powerful thing and it's just not doing that or yeah, exactly. Like I, I play Tassiger in multiple of these games. It's not enough of a clock against like spirits or anything like that. It is a fine card in mid range matchups again, because they're relying on push and strangle like Tassiger's awesome there, but it's not good against any of the, the it's not good against spirits and it's not good against blue white and it's not good against mono green. Hmm. And then it's ability like in theory is card advantage, but not really. Cause they just give you, you know, is Thoughtseize bad? Okay, that's what you get. Or is Push bad? Like, there's it doesn't actually gain anything. I've activated it a zillion times and never gotten the card that I wanted. Yeah, it reminds me of your old, like, Titan's Nest decks. Yeah, the thing that I liked about this list is a list that really does use the graveyard, but, like, almost punishes your opponent. Like, if you bring in Hearse against this deck, it's not good. Like, Sadisi and Liliana just function fine without Hearse. Like, you've brought in on this quote-unquote cyborg card that's supposed to be a trump in these matchups, and it doesn't do anything. I just like make an army of two twos and just get to seven mana and cast Titan. Got old Rutstein and Sylvan Curated <laughs> gradually getting your men up to seven. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, six and six, I'm going to call that a win. I would have predicted a much worse record for a CDC brood tyrant. So <laughs> color me impressed. 
Now, the last deck here is, again, in black-green colors, but instead of playing blue, you're dipping into red, and the big draw is Fires of Invention. So this is a totally different engine style, um, but Fires of Invention will let you double spell, and you'll be rewarded for that if you have massive card advantage and big mana sinks. And it's not immediately obvious to me, like, how to take advantage of that in Jund colors. But I feel like the list that you've put together here actually solves that in a really interesting way using cars from Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. Yeah, so we had played a bunch of Grixis Fires of Invention Invoke, but once they banned Expressive Iteration, you had a hard time playing enough mana sources and then having enough card advantage to not flood, right? So Expressive Iteration was nice early and made sure you hit your fires on four, but then it was a nice card to keep like the, the juice flowing late in the game to find your uh, Invoke Despair. So Rhett, who is a friend of the pod, said he'd been monkeying around with a shell like this on Explorer. And the interaction is Shigeki uh, Jukai Visionary. You got to read this one. This is a reader. Yeah. So one in a green, one, three legendary enchantment creature. So one in a green, tap it, return it to your hand. You look at your top four and you may put a land into play tap. So if you play it on turn two, on turn three, you can ramp. And then on the following turn, turn Four, you can have five mana and five lands in play in theory. But the ability that we're interested in is channel. So green, green, XX, return X target non-legendary cards from your graveyard to your hand. So what we're trying to do is get a fires in play, get six mana basically, and then you just cast Invoke Despair, draw two, cast another spell, then just Shigeki both of them back. And you just end up with this like incredible value engine because Shigeki functions um, like Leer in the old Grixis list where you just have a way to like keep churning Invoke Despair after Invoke Despair after Invoke Despair. Uh, and it's uncounterable, so they, there's nothing that they can do about it. The deck does not rely on Graveyard for anything else, so it's like hard to bring in Graveyard hate against a deck that's just trying to cast Fires of Invention. Uh, and then we just have a bunch of you know value hidden in our land slots. So we're playing 25 lands with four MDFCs um, and then just basically like mid-range interactive spells. Right, these are strong MDFCs, Hagra Mauling, uh, Tangle, Florahedron, the ramp. Yeah, Shigeki, it's like a lot of details here, right? Like that activated ability is straight up card advantage. It puts a land directly into play and the cards that you didn't choose go to the graveyard. So they're actually like filling the graveyard for future copies of Shigeki. Yes. Now the channel ability can't be countered that's very important but also it has that non-legendary clause so you can't just like keep looping shigeki forever um unless you're willing to play something like uh what, what are cards that bring shigeki back you have the takanuma here um you could play gloom shrieker you can play Culligan's command Culligan's command you could play balagad recovery maybe if you wanted to yeah yep what i found though is like you activated shigeki with six mana in play and then you like get an invoke and something else or two invokes. Like you just don't need to do that that many times. <laughs> Your opponent's already dead. So our determination after playing two leagues is we did not want another card other than Takanuma specifically, mm. uh, which is again, just a value landslide. We'd play no matter what. Okay. So fires plus channel as your, as your big like extra action seems very powerful, but was the end game good enough? Like how, how did the deck actually perform? Oh, yeah. We only lost when we kind of got, like, overrun. Like, Spirits, again, is a difficult matchup. Um, Fires is not good against Grease Fang. So, I think we went 4-1, uh, tweaked a few cards, and then went 2-3. 
again, it felt, feels like something's there. Um, we, again, this is a, the list we're looking at is, is a little tweaked. I added Riveteer's Charm. That seemed like a cool, like, removal spell that's also like a value engine in the late game. Celestis overperformed every time we cast it. So we had one Celestis, one um, uh, Old Rutstein. Celestis just seemed better. Both this Shigeki list and the uh, Sidisi list really took advantage of this Florahedron. Because hmm. what I noticed against these like super tempo-y decks, the games where you actually get to turn to ramp against decks that don't kill creatures. So I'm talking about Wano Blue. I'm talking about most humans lists in game one. Playing the ramp spell out on two against them is so good. You know, you get to cast your fires earlier, or play a double spell earlier. And then when it doesn't matter, like you don't want to cast Tangle Florahedron against Red Black, right? You just want to hit all your land drops. Then it just comes into play tapped. You're, you're choosing to play it slow. Red Black's clock is super slow, right? They, they have a lot of powerful cards, but they, they won't kill you before turn six ever, right? They just, they don't have the means to do so. So it, it's, it's just a really nice place where it keeps your density of lands up, but then there's other times where we like had to invoke on turn four to not die. And Florahedron lets you do that, right? And in, in, in the same way Celestis does. Yeah, I like that a lot. And then Hagra Mauling, again, typically a bad card, I think. But Fires just wants you, when you resolve Fires, to do something on four. And this is just, no questions about it, always kills a creature that turn. So you just play Fires, you just have a four mana kill spell. And again, what it is a land in a pinch, not the end of the world. Yes, these lists making me like appreciate the depth of Kamigawa Neon Dynasty a little bit more. Like we never actually did a dedicated week on Invoke Despair, but I mean it's it's proving itself. Right? You see it from time to time in Pioneer. You see it in Modern even. Um, Shigeki, dominant card in Limited, but like hey, I mean that interaction with Fires is like one of the more powerful things I can think of in terms of end games. Like there's a lot of little stuff from Kamigawa that uh, yeah, I'm glad we get to spend a little extra time with it here during the summer season. Yeah. I think with a little bit of distance here, I think Neon Dynasty is one of the great sets they've ever made. It's just super deep. Uh, there's just a zillion powerful cards. I wish a few more of the um, sagas were good. Like Fable turned out to be much better than we thought. Again, except for you, you, you highlighted earlier. It's like a card that really does a lot. I feel like a, almost all the other sagas are just a little bit worse than we thought they'd be, but a bunch of other cards were just super useful and, and they encourage Buron. I just think it's like, a, it's a triumph. Mm-hmm. Had things worked out better, not that Wizards needs to schedule their set releases around our brewing podcast, but... <laughs> It would have been nice if we had the whole summer to work on Neon Dynasty as opposed to... <laughs> in a way, we have. I keep trying yeah. out Neon Dynasty cards. There's not that much depth in Nuka Pena. I actually think that this is one of the worst sets. That it's a, it's more of a Strixhaven mm. with a couple of interesting cards. And the overall themes don't have any resonance. And, you know, nobody knows who the hell Xander is. And no one... <laughs> like, it didn't even really prompt three-color decks to exist in... It's true. Standard. It, it didn't even do its thing. So, uh, yeah. Like the most three colored card is the freaking Hinata, which is from. <laughs> <laughs> That's from Neon Dynasty. <laughs> yeah, which we five owed with, right? Like there's just a lot of cool Neon Dynasty stuff to play around with. And I just huge, huge win for Wizards. I think that set was awesome in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, I thought for sure we would at least do a week for each of the, the crime families. But when you look at them, like there's not internal synergies to them. They don't suggest any decks. Like so some of them have interesting cards, but like. Some don't, and there isn't like a maestro's deck or theme, even like a casualty is a mechanic, but like that's like a one off mechanic you'll see on like one card. 
Yeah, and like connive is cool, but nothing like pays you off for conniving. It just randomly is looting. So just the cheapest card that had co- consistent connive on it is super playable. No other card with connive really matters. That's it. It's it's yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, again, not a disaster. I heard that the limited format was also quite poor. It's just, you know, a C plus and they've had a, a run of a bunch of B pluses. And I think that Neon Dynasty was an A plus. So, yeah, well said. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us for today. Our next episode is going to be a wrap up of our Ginny Faye testing month. And we will also be presenting a new slate of cards. So it's been a nice coincidence having the kickoff of these projects with Serum Visions be during the, the summer doldrums, as it were, because the brewers in our Discord have no shortage whatsoever of sweet cars to brew around from different eras of the game. And it's always sweet to see what people come up with. So tune in for that uh, coming up next time. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right. Take care, David. All right. Take care. Deck lists for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in next time for the conclusion of Project Ginny Fay with Brian Madden and Arun Singh of the Serum Visions podcast. Support for this show is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.